I think there are a few books in history that have changed history, that have been epoch-making. You could think of um, uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which was the foundation for modern economics, or Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, which has had a profound influence um, both on biology, but more widely that's overflowed into all sorts of other um, uh, disciplines that are applying evolutionary thought. Or um, perhaps Albert Einstein, not one book, but four papers he wrote in a single year. One year, Einstein wrote four papers that proved to be foundational for the whole of uh, physics for the next hundred years. There have been some extraordinary things written, but actually... Romans is right up there with them. In fact, it's arguable that uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, a very um, short um, thing in, in, uh, in total, nevertheless has been profoundly influential, particularly on the Western uh, world. We saw last week that Paul's immediate intentions were relatively modest. If you were here, we saw that he, he wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome to, to help them to be a, in part, to be a church, or, or perhaps churches, that were engaged with world mission. Because he intended to pass through Rome a little while later, to go on to Spain, to preach the gospel in Spain where it had not been preached. And he wanted to ensure that the church in Rome was uh, supportive of his world ministry. And we said last week that that global intention of Paul's, that they would be a missionary church, he saw had to start locally. And so he speaks an enormous amount in Romans about their their unity as a local body of believers across racial and class and educational backgrounds. Because as they work out the implications of the gospel for all kinds of people locally, he was confident that they would see that all kinds of people throughout the world needed the gospel and they would support him. And then we, last week we saw, we, we said, well, how, how does he do that? How does he make, help them be a, a world mission-oriented church? How does he help them to be united one way, one way or another? He actually explains the gospel to them. Explains the gospel, what God has done for each one of them as individuals. Irrespective of their race or their class or their educational background irrespective of how righteous or unrighteous they were. We saw Romans 1-4 to is about how we are made right with God just through, simply through faith in Christ. We saw that Romans 5-8 to is about how we are transformed and made into new people. Not, not through obeying rules, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that Romans 9-11 to is about the fundamental faithfulness of God so that Jews needed to understand that God hadn't been unfaithful to his promises in the Old Testament. His promises had always been that his people would be a global people from every nation. And as they understood that, he was confident that they would 
be transformed as local churches. The thing that we're going to look at today is how Romans has had an influence far beyond what Paul originally saw. It's become a major influence down through the church for revival. I want to do that by just painting a few pictures of people, prominent Christians at least ultimately, who have been transformed by their reading of Paul's letter to the Romans. The first ones, this chap actually, we don't know what he looked like, that's a guess. Augustine of Hippo was his name. He was born in 354 AD in a town called Thagast, which is now part of Algeria. His father was a pagan, his mother was a Christian. The Roman Empire had recently adopted Christianity as the state religion. Constantine, Emperor Constantine, in 313 had given the Edict of Milan and uh, um, uh, the whole Roman Empire was now nominally at least Christian. Um, Augustine didn't grow up professing to be a Christian at all. Um, quite the opposite. Um, but he... Um, had a glittering career as a teacher of rhetoric. His pre-Christian life, um, apart from his, his extraordinary giftedness, was otherwise pretty normal. Tells you about, um, in his uh, autobiography, the confessions about um, scrumping apples as a, as a naughty little schoolboy, for instance. And he grew up as a young man to have a sexually promiscuous uh, lifestyle. He finally kept a concubine, which was quite a, um, quite a common practice in those days. A low-status woman who was kept for sex and for doing things around the home, and when he got married she would be discarded. That was how it worked, and Augustine embraced that. But he was always fascinated by Christianity. His problem was that he just couldn't master his urges. He was attracted to Christianity, but he couldn't bring himself to follow Christ. Um, he recalls himself saying to God, Grant me chastity and continency, but not yet. He struggled then, over many years, slowly being more and more persuaded that Christianity had the answer, but unable, or was it unwilling? He just didn't know, he just didn't understand. Somehow he just couldn't bring himself to follow Christ. And um, he finally found himself in a garden in spiritual turmoil, and he tells us this in his autobiography, The Confessions. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from a neighbouring house, chanting and oft repeating, Take up and read. Take up and read. 
Immediately my countenance was changed and I began most earnestly to consider whether it was usual for children in any kind of game to sing such words, nor could I remember ever to have heard the like. So, restraining the torrent of my tears, I rose up, interpreting it in no other way than a command to me from heaven to open the book, to read the first chapter that I should light upon. So quickly I returned to the place where I put down the volume of the apostles when I rose, when I rose thence. I glanced, uh, grasped, opened, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. No further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. He was reading Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14. You can turn to it if you like, in slightly modern that more modern writing. That passage was the turning point for Augustine. He had made a decisive step. But it's very important for us to understand why that was uh, such a turning point for him. It, it, it's not immediately obvious, and indeed it wasn't immediately clear to Augustine why that had been such a turning point for him. But um, the key, as he came to see later, was this. God gave a command, not in rioting and drunkenness, but also, he came to realise, God gave the ability to follow the command as he described it, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart. Augustine didn't understand what had happened to him, particularly at that time. Why, suddenly, on reading that text, he had been turned around and changed so that he followed God, because he read text, similar texts before, and they had not changed him. And slowly, slowly he came to realise that both the instruction to live a new life and the ability to live, live that new life come from God. Actually, Augustine's favourite verse, the verse he quoted more often than anything else in all of his writings, was Romans chapter 5, verse 5 that Marley read to us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given for us. That, for Augustine, became his key verse in understanding what God had done to, to him and in him. God had poured out his love into Augustine's heart by the Spirit and so God had given him an assurance and a personal transformation that gave him a solid and certain hope. 
God both gives commands, but actually, only as he gives the ability to follow those commands can we change. And that was absolutely dynamic for Augustine. It changed his life around. It was absolutely crucial for the church of his day. In his day there was a, a, um, a great debate going on between a man called Pelagius and, uh, uh, and Augustine. Pelagius said, no, you can just by your own strength and your own will uh, lead the life that God calls you to lead. You indeed can lead a perfect life, said Pelagius. And everyone, many people were attracted to it. And Augustine said, no, we are profoundly dependent upon God for every good thing that comes into our lives. If Pelagianism had won the day, the church would have become proud and compromised. Proud because of all the, all the people claiming that they had um, achieved all the transformation that uh, was in their lives and compromised because in reality not much transformation was possible and in those situations um, people always then just try and make up compromising rules to try and accommodate their lack of change and that has happened to God's people again and again down through history the Pharisees were proud and compromised in Jesus' day Deeply proud of the rules that they had and deeply compromised as Jesus described them. Letting go of the commands of God to hold on to the traditions of men. And they are the most despised people in the New Testament. God's church was revived through realising this primary work of God in transforming our hearts. And it's my prayer that as we actually work through Romans, we will see that again and again, and that will be impressed upon us profoundly. Because only as we see that are we opened up to that transformation that God achieves in us. Augustine became the, the sort of foundation stone then for, well, to be honest, much of Christian um, uh, reflection and theology for the last 15 years, uh, 1500 years since, uh, um, since he was alive. And certainly he became vital for a movement a thousand years after his day, which was called the Reformation. When once again some of these same fundamental truths were rediscovered. This time, the key figure the key foundational figure was a man called Martin Luther. He came, he, he lit, was born in 1483 in uh, Germany. He was the son of middle class parents. He, um, as a result really of a um, bit of superstition, he became a, a, a monk. But he was tormented by guilt. He was obsessed with his sins. He was terrified of God. And he describes what then happened to him in this way. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean uh, that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. 
And my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I didn't love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered, until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by his faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning, whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, I don't blame you for, as you heard that, thinking, dear me, there's a lot of complex stuff there. But... um, Uh, uh, we will see what uh, Luther was talking about over coming weeks. The key things to notice are this. First of all, Romans was the key to his personal transformation. First of all. And the second thing was, what he saw in Romans was the grace of God. The free, unmerited gift of God. Just as Augustine had seen God's free gift of personal transformation, so Luther saw God's free gift of justification, of being put right with God, of being forgiven by God through Christ's death on the cross. And that, that, that free gift of God of forgiveness set Luther free. He was a transformed man. In his day, people had taught that uh, faith is actually a work. You have to do the work of faith in order to merit your forgiveness. And Luther said, no, no, faith is not a work. Faith is just a coming to God and saying, I can do nothing, God, but you can forgive me. Please forgive me. Luther, through that insight, sparked what became called the Reformation, a great revival of the work of God throughout Europe, which uh, led, of course, to the the Protestant Church, um, which has seen wave after wave after wave of revivals uh, for the last 500 years since then, all based fundamentally on that great... um, foundational truth of God's grace another man who was greatly influenced a hundred years later um, by um, the Reformation and specifically by Romans was this man this man is John Bunyan born in a very ordinary family in 1628 near Bedfordshire he um, uh, became famous partly because he was repeatedly imprisoned for preaching his non-conformist faith 
um, after the restoration of the monarchy when Charles I forbade it, but mainly because he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan's conversion, he describes in this way. I was walking up and down in the house as a man in a most woeful state. That word of God, sorry, as I was walking up and down in the house, that word of God took hold of my heart. Ye are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3.24. But oh, what a turn it made upon me. Now was I as one awakened out of some troublesome sleep and dream, and listening to this heavenly sentence, I was as if I had heard it thus expounded to me. Sinner, thou thinkest that thou, because of thy sins and infirmities, cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee. And I will deal with thee as according as I am pleased with him. At this I was greatly lightened in my mind, and made to understand that God could justify a sinner at any time. It was but looking upon Christ, and imputing his benefits to us, and the work was forthwith done. Bunyan's insight, the same as Luther's, from the same place, Paul's letter to the Romans, and it transformed him. Pilgrim's progress um, has become, uh, I think, still the second most read book in the English language. And uh, in previous generations, not so much now, you would find person after person after person who had been profoundly influenced and helped by Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It set people free. It changed the world. Or another man, John Wesley. He uh, was born nearly a century later, in 1703. He was the son of an Anglican clergyman. He was massively zealous. He came to um, Oxford, formed a group called the Holy Club, but actually they started called, uh, people who uh, um, mocked them started calling them the Methodists because of their obsessive discipline in their Christian lives. But uh, Wesley, all the time, knew himself to be a defeated man. He uh, uh, went off on a mission journey to the American colonies and it failed utterly. He came back utterly despondent and searching for a true relationship with God. In 1738, when he was uh, 35, he records this. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even my, mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He was transformed. His heart 
was strangely warmed. God had worked a work in his heart so that he was assured of forgiveness, of God's forgiveness. God had taken away my sins, as he put it. And that experience for Wesley transformed him so that even secular historians say that Wesley was probably the most influential man of the 18th century because of his influence on British uh, uh, society. And it was not an influence based on haranguing, based on, on, uh, uh, on uh, calling people to more godly lives as if they could do it by their own strength. In that same year, 1738, he came to Oxford and addressed the Oxford Dons in, um, uh, uh, I think it was on the High, in the church on the High, and he said that only the doctrine of salvation by faith could, I quote, give a check to that immorality which hath overspread the land as a flood. Here's a paradox, isn't there? You offer someone free forgiveness and you think they will say thank you very much and run off and lead a terrible life. When I'm talking to my Muslim friends about grace, they especially say that. They say, how, how, can, you, how can you believe in grace? Surely that's the, that's the big problem that has led to all the, the um, uh, uh, degradation that is in British society. But the paradox is that people who are really transfixed by this message of free grace and forgiveness are truly transformed. And it is that message, again and again, that reverses what Wesley described as, as the immorality that overspread the land as a flood. Because that message changes hearts. Wesley not only, of course, became the father of the Methodist Church, uh, far, he had far more influence than that. In fact, Methodism itself tended to be in decline even at the end of Wesley's life. But the message of grace that Wesley brought profoundly influenced William Wilberforce. And what did he do? He laboured with the joy and the energy that came from that security in God absolutely endlessly to see the abolition of the slave trade. Indeed, John Wesley's last letter that we have was a letter to Wilberforce saying that if God has got hold of you nothing can stop you William Wilberforce he was right Wesley influenced the Baptists as well in the first half of the 19th century there was a great upsurge of, um, uh, of uh, Baptist church planting which yielded enormous amounts of fruit. He influenced the Anglicans through William Wilberforce. Again, he, he was a profound influence on William Carey, who became the father of modern day missions. All of them saw that the fountainhead of their, that great movement had been one man hearing Luther's preface to Romans read in a little back street chapel. Romans really has changed the world. That's my 
prayer. That is my hope as we study Paul's letter to the Romans. Because those are the big stories. There are tens of thousands of millions of smaller stories of people being gripped by this message of Paul's. A message which is about grace from beginning to end. God's free gift of forgiveness. God's free gift of transformation in our lives. And as it grips us, it changes us. And as we pass it on, it changes others. And as those others are changed, churches are born and reformed and spring into vital life. And as the message of the gospel spreads, so not only more and more people are brought into the kingdom of God, but actually the whole of this world is shaped. Who knows what God will do as we study Paul's letter to the Romans. But I hope your appetite is thoroughly whetted that he can do great things in us too.